start the week with Tim and Damo on the Unmade Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Tim Burrows. As we record, it's just before 7am on Monday morning in New South Wales. And it's getting on for 10 o'clock on Sunday night for me here in the UK. Today, Foxtel float falls over as the streamers battle for new content. The election media blitz begins. And Ray Hadley's SCA Sledge. Unmade. Well, Dave, my slightly different setup to usual uh, this week. Um, I can't help but notice on the uh, the video screen that uh, you seem to be sitting in a car. You, you noticed it's slightly different to the house. Yes, we're on we're on holidays at the moment uh, around Jarvis Bay, a, a rather lovely suburb called Currong, right on the the beach. It's. Uh, a lovely sunny morning, which is not something Sydney siders have been able to say for quite some time. But the the kids and my wife are asleep in the holiday house, so I've parked the car as close as I can to the house to pick up internet reception. And I am coming to you from my 2015 Honda, which is comfortable enough. It, it, it's fine. But how are you? Yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you very much. No, less less eventful for me. I'm still in the UK, still here for a few more weeks yet, although I'm uh, excited to report I will be back in Australia in time for the election. Um, no busy few days. I did the uh, did the, the video call into the Castlemaine Writers Festival in Victoria on, on Friday. So we were talking about uh, uh, the media and public trust and uh, in the context of a coming election. So it all felt very pointed. And this is, as we say, it's 10 o'clock at the night for me right now, at the start of a very long day because I set my alarm for 6am or just before 6am to catch the, uh, the, 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 the full Melbourne Grand Prix, which wasn't too bad a race, was it? I think it was a, a pretty good race. A lot of entertainment stuff going on, multiple safety cars. Um, obviously, yesterday for us here in Australia, but uh, a good uh, a good way to welcome back uh, Formula One to Australia. Well, let's get to it. Where should we start this week? Yeah, Tim, it's been a big weekend for TV. There's a lot of points to talk about here, but let's start with one we've been following, and I think a large part of the industry has been following for uh, a while now, and that, of course, is the Foxtel IPO with news out in the SMH and the Oz that it's very likely now that it's not going to go ahead. And you, of course, uh, predicted this on start the week. Are you surprised at all? I'm going to guess not. (laughs) No, I suppose not. It did feel like the moment had probably gone. Um, I guess this is the official, unofficial confirmation. It certainly looks like someone from close to Foxtel has has briefed um, the Australian claiming one exclusive. And it's it's also in the Sydney Morning Herald in quite similar detail as well. Uh, It was just it was beginning to look like it wasn't going to happen. I think there are a couple of issues. One was that it looked like um, the numbers didn't look quite good enough to sell in the float in terms of maybe growth was just beginning to kind of peak a little bit and also just the kind of profitability had had a bit of a kind of question mark about whether that was going to go backwards. So that was all there. Also, IPOs have already slowed down in the US, so that that had already gone. 
And again, the market seemed to be turning against heavy investment in streaming anyway. So, so I think perhaps the, the Australian, which is, is, it should be said part of the same sort of media family as Foxtel, which is two thirds owned by News Corp, was perhaps a bit kind in interpreting it as, well, firstly, delayed until later this year. I'd be surprised if it does come back and saying it's because of, uh, factors like um, they're, they're blaming things like, for instance, interest rate rises and the ongoing war in Ukraine as some reasons for the stall. Um, I think, though, that um, the question now remains of what next, because there is this, we've talked about it before, $2 billion debt floating around, which, which you know, the biggest, the biggest kind of holder of that debt is News Corp as one of the owners, so it's not just the banks. But there is still now this question of, well, well, what next if not this? Yeah, now that's a good question because uh, there was a quote in The Australian from Patrick Delaney, the CEO of Foxtel Group, earlier this year. And I'll read out the quote, which was, uh, whether the owners decide to offer part of it to the public or whether we're talking to debt markets about refinancing or, frankly, our own shareholders, we are building stable value. What do you think next? Do they just go quiet for a, a little bit, noting that they're set up, they can uh, IPO when ready, or uh, are they now looking for a different way uh, of achieving bigger results? Yeah, look, this is something that's probably worth mentioning that um, that is mentioned in the Australian's article is they're saying they they got as far as having the prospectus written. There's the detail that they were looking to raise or, you know, effectively take off the table about a billion dollars. Now, there's no detail in this one on whether they're also going to try and uh, retire some of that debt or whether the newly floated entity would have you know, come into existence with that big debt. So um, that that detail isn't there. Um, I I don't know what they do next because, uh, as it stands, it's it's a lot of money that the company owes, and it's not it's not throwing out that much uh, money and profits at the moment. So it's a stretch. Um, you know, I think that the kind of the wild speculation to think about would be, well, what happens if one or other of the companies loses patience? You know, is there is there a means of one or the other buying it out? Is there some sort of, uh, look, I, I, I can't even begin to think through the consequences of some sort of insolvency event, you know, effectively, you know, News Corp is the debt holder, so could it pick it up that way? But that that feels like shades of the Channel Ten disaster, where Lachlan Murdoch, in a personal capacity, was one of the the, the people who was owed money and made that made that play and didn't end up with Channel Ten at the other end. So um, whether they'd view that one a second time, lucky there's and there's a long way to go before that one. So I, I don't think I'd want to go too far down the road in predicting that outcome, but. They're going to have to think of something. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the Australian, at uh, the very end of that article, mentioning uh, again a topic we've already talked about previously, which is uh, Telstra seemingly uh, having uh, agreed a deal to uh, acquire video aggregator Fetch. Uh, no announcement officially on that, but uh, the rumors are still pretty hot there. We've got to move on because, as I mentioned before, there's a lot to talk about with TV. Uh, let's keep talking uh, about uh, floating TV because. 
Channel 4 in the UK uh, looks like it may just be doing that. And now, to me, as an Australian, this is a very interesting thing. It, it felt akin to maybe the ABC being floated. Now, I don't know a huge amount about Channel 4, Tim, so maybe you can catch me up on this situation. <laughs> well, I, I guess the first, um, uh, I guess, claim to fame of Channel 4 is, for all of us who are fans of Letters and Numbers, the SBS TV show, the um, the format is called Countdown in the UK, was the very first show that was aired on Channel 4 when it came on air in the, or I reckon it would be the 1980s. I'm just old enough to remember it. Um, so when you see things like Channel, when you see things like um, uh, 8 Out of 10 Cats does Countdown, um, then uh, that that's the program heritage. Um, but it's a it, it it's an odd beast, really. So you, you'll be well, well aware of the BBC as a, a publicly owned body, but it's the same for Channel Four as well. Although it it's commercially funded, so it carries advertising, so it runs itself not at a loss. But there are no shareholders at the moment, so it's able to invest everything back in the programming. And it's um, really important for the the British ecosystem because it commissions everything. It doesn't make shows itself, so that it makes a big contribution to the production sector. Um, but it's also tended, particularly in its news reporting, to um, be pretty... Uh, you know, be, be be pretty assertive in how it reports, and that possibly has angered the uh, the Conservative government. So they have decided that it's going to be taken out of public ownership, and they're looking at different means of doing that. Whether it's just sell it to one of the major broadcasters, or as being suggested in the Sunday Times um, a few hours ago, uh, could it actually float? So just as we see a float going off the agenda for Foxtel. It looks like there's a big TV float going on the agenda in the UK. Now, another big thing that is going on at the moment is streaming uh, and more information uh, about NBC Universal and the deal that could be up for grabs there. There was a lot of talk previously uh, about the business launching Peacock uh, in Australia, its streaming service. That seems to have gone a little cold, according to Zoe Samios at the SMH, with uh, company executive Justin Che from Comcast. Uh, now, he's the managing director of Asia Pacific, uh, NBCU. He's flown into Australia to have talks uh, about uh, the process of selling several of its programs, films and, and channels uh, to uh, media in Australia. So it looks like they may be going a different way other than launching Peacock uh, in Australia, which, according to the SMH, could be a very sensible plan in the current market. Are you surprised by this one, Tim? Look, it's been floating around for a little while. It's been like a piece of the jigsaw that hasn't landed anywhere because everyone has been aware that this content is out there, um, a lot of content with some sort of deal to be done. You know, the the obvious one uh would have been for seven West Media to do some sort of joint venture with a streaming offering here. Certainly it would have made sense for seven West Media because they don't have a subscription-based streaming play. They're the only major TV network that doesn't have exposure to one here in Australia. So that... um that 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 made sense from the local logic. Um, but equally, 
all of the kind of big US-based TV players are talking a big game about their global strategies. You know, that that that's where so, some of them are getting their um, uh, big stock market valuations from. So the expectation had been that, been that we would see Peacock launch sooner or later in, in Australia, and I'm sure it still will. But in the meantime, there's a lot in not 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 just in the new stuff. There's a lot in the library. So we're we're talking about stuff like the US series of The Office, Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine Nine, um, Downton Abbey, um, which a lot of them are with um, Stan at the moment. So it does look as if there's an opportunity for stand to hang on to content that maybe they're going to lose but also for foxtel group which is going to face a similar battle to hang on to hbo quite soon to also come in so i tell you what it really reminds me of is everything old is new again when it comes to the relationship between the australian tv networks and the u.s studios if you look back about 10 or 15 years the Australian TV networks were such big customers of the studios, you know, and that, that, that was a sort of period when you could put something like Desperate Housewives or Lost or Friends on primetime television and it would rate really well. Now, there's a different purpose this time, you know, Australian audiences seem to want, at least for primetime, Australian made content. But this library stuff is the absolute backbone of the streaming services locally. So, yeah, it does. It's a new. It's a new twist that it looks like um, we're not going to see Peacock anytime soon. Because, yeah, certainly it does look like um, NBC Universal are, are hoping to squeeze some quite big dollars out of the market. Well, that's uh, that's exactly right. Everything old is new again and expensive uh, because this puts them. Uh, NBC in a, in a pretty compelling uh, position. The SMH had suggested uh, that the deal between Warner Media and Foxtel uh, recently signed was estimated to be uh, about a hundred million dollars uh, per year. So this uh, this puts them in a very strong position. But let's move on to the the final topic we wanted to talk about uh, with TV was um, the, the lobbying uh on connected tv placements which was in the afr now that sounds a a little bit confusing but essentially uh the free-to-air tv lobby group free tv uh has been uh, lobbying the government to ensure that connected tvs uh place free-to-air channels apps and services in prominent positions uh when it comes to the user interfaces and Anyone who buys a, a digital TV nowadays will get 4K, UHD, QLED and all these other things, but a user interface much like your smartphone. And the idea here is ensuring that the free-to-air channels get prominence of position. Now, this made me laugh somewhat in that when I think back to smartphones, no matter what sort of deals the manufacturers had done with different services, businesses to have their apps prominently displayed on the phone. The first thing consumers would generally do is go to the the homepage and delete everything they didn't want and customize it themselves. Uh, But maybe that's me being a bit too much of a a tech nerd. Uh, Tim, what do you think, uh, what do you think is going to happen here? Paul Fletcher, the communications minister uh, has uh, suggested he's listening to the arguments. It is interesting because it, 
it is already and increasingly going to be a real battleground. Uh, I think anyone who has a connected TV, which I guess is most of us now, will be aware that we are driven by what we see right in front of us. So, you know, it's a real, it is a real thing. Um, I thought it was a really interesting point you make about people customising their mobiles. Um, I must admit, my own behaviour so far hasn't been that much to customise my, um, you know, the, the, the effect with the home page of my television mm. but maybe that says more about me um i think one of the things is that the tv industry has always had this special relationship special hold over the governments of the day particularly now the coalition government in getting what it wants when it comes to policy and the media companies generally so we've seen it with you know nicer and nicer deals when it comes to what the tv networks pay to license uh license the airwaves um and it i find myself seeing this piece of lobbying and thinking yeah okay i can see why this is in the interests of the australian tv companies um where do the viewers best interests come into this though what what automatically says that somebody wants to see a current affair presented more prominently than something on Netflix, for instance. Um, now, you know, there is a long habit of the, the Morrison government um, backing the home team. And it's kind of interesting that Paul Fletcher, the communications minister, is talking about this in, you know, really very very late in the day for this government and he might not even be the communications minister in another six weeks um which again says a lot about what tends to happen with media policy um so i think yeah i'd like to be persuaded that the the one person who isn't in this room in this in this uh working party that that had its first meeting last week is the viewer it'll be be interesting to just understand why this is in their interests. Yeah, you raise a very good point there, Tim, with uh, Paul Fletcher potentially not being in that role come May 22. Well, next, the election begins. Unmade. So, Tim, the election has been called. Uh, in- Insiders was on air as Scott Morrison flew to Canberra. There have been campaigns running on TV already. We spoke about Clive Palmer on Start the Week uh, last episode. We're about to see some big spending and some big moves. Uh, what are you expecting coming up? Yeah, look, I, it was um, it was fun watching the stream of Insiders as they had to throw their usual schedule out of the window. Firstly, because David Spears was off sick with COVID, so Patricia Carvelis was uh, standing in for him. But then the little box in the corner as Scott Morrison's plane took off from Sydney and then in not many minutes, the little box in the corner as his plane landed in Canberra and, and off he toddled to see the Governor-General. Um and I must admit, it kind of did throw things awry to the extent that they dropped the usual talking pictures segment, which uh, which was a bit of a uh, shame for what was a fairly uh, routine bit of travel from uh, Sydney to Canberra. Um, but yeah, I I think we're gonna 
I have a feeling we're still going to see quite a traditional campaign when it comes to uh, the advertising world. You know, I, I it still feels like for mainstream Australia, this is going to be played out through the news and through paid advertising, particularly broadcast advertising, a little bit more social media, obviously, but it doesn't feel like the main rules of the game have changed for this one. Or certainly not in my view. What do you think? Yeah, look, it's, it's really interesting. I, I did uh, an article last week uh, in partnership with Canda, an advertising monitoring service, which discovered that the Australian government had already been spending big, the biggest peak time advertiser in March with its uh, Australia's Making Positive Energy campaign. Now, that had uh, 1,159 spots in the five major metro areas. So they've already been going hard quite early. But look, uh, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, I guess, assumption at the moment that the outcome is going to be in favour of Labor. So I do wonder whether this will be a battle run mainly to try and get the, I guess, what do you want to call them, younger voters, uh, the the sort of uh, millennials and, and younger to to try and cast that last minute vote for uh, for the Liberal Party, um, but and and it's probably worth just clarifying on that point on the Liberal Party. You know what we're talking about in the candidate is advertising on behalf of the Australian government that in theory is non-party political, so paid for by the taxpayer. And of course, one of the rules of the election is that has to be now switched off. And this is, you know, what we're about to see is is partisan advertising funded by the parties themselves. But I think one of the things that really kind of raised my eyebrows, and it's always been there, but just looking at the data that, that you and Kander had, had sort of worked up, was just how much is being spent on something which is as I say, from the public funds, but but felt quite close to political. Yeah. Now, speaking about funding as well, I'd love to get your point on whether whether this advertising blackout on, on the eve of the election, now that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, three days uh, before the election, there's a blackout on, on advertising, whether that will make a huge uh, effect. I, I, I noted that uh, Joan Warner of the Commercial Radio Australia, the outgoing uh, CEO there uh, was uh, saying that this wasn't a good thing for media in terms of there was a lot of uh, money there that they won't be able to to access because that that spend won't be being spent. I see it a slightly different way, and surely you would spend that just prior to those three days. But do you think this will make a, a major difference to to the the advertising campaigns and the strategy at all? Look, it, it feels like one that the election comes along each time and the broadcasters make a big noise, um, not least because those rules don't apply to social media. So we'll probably see some of those advertising dollars move across to digital in those those last hours of the election. It does feel like if the, you know, I've talked already about how the TV companies are so good at lobbying the government and getting what they want. At some point, they will organise themselves and lobby for this because it would take a change in legislation. Um, but really, they only tend to get cross about it um, when the election's approaching, and then obviously it goes quiet again. So, yeah, I think that 
obviously it's too late for them to do anything about it this time, but uh, uh, I guess it'll be back on the to-do list. Next, Ray Hadley's brutal Oz stereo assessment. So, Tim, we're going to talk about the media diary in The Australian again. Nick Tabakoff has come up with another interesting one, having spoken to well-known radio host Ray Hadley last week. Now, he's had a pretty major swipe at Southern Cross Oz Stereo, which, as we know, has been having a few struggles uh, recently. We've obviously been talking about SEA a, a little bit in terms of the deal with uh, uh, CBS and, and what happens with regional TV there. But this is a completely different story. Uh, Hadley's had a swipe at SCA. Uh, what's been going on? Yeah, so it's on, on, on the one hand, he works for a rival company because um, he broadcasts on 2GB and 4BC, which are owned by Nine. But on the other hand, he was until quite recently networked into some of the regions, uh, the regional Triple M radio stations, including, uh, as um, Nick Tabakov points out, in Coffs Harbour and Port Macquarie. Um, now, since SCA took the decision to move away from Ray Hadley to network in their own people instead, ratings have fallen quite badly. And that was what triggered this comment this week from from Hadley. Um, what's interesting, though, is there is something in that. Um, his point, I mean, the quote, they have presided over disaster after disaster after disaster. You wonder how long shareholders will cop the people who lead this network down a path of mediocrity. Now, there's probably two major things to think about there. There was the um, not quite a decade ago, but not that it, it will be a decade soon. Um, failure to hang on to Carl Sanderlands and Jackie Henderson, who went over to uh, Australian Radio Network and successfully launched Kiss, and basically left uh, Today FM, where they had been the uh, the Sydney radio station in 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 limbo, still hasn't recovered. Um, I remember doing a piece of research myself for Unmade. Um, I reckon it would have been late last year, possibly early this year. I think it was late last year where I just went and looked at the performance um, over the last year in the five metro markets of Triple M, which is one of the SCA uh, networks and the hit network. And in every single market, one of those two stations was bottom of the the major FM commercial players. Um, for what was the market-dominating, market-leading network for so long as Austereo before the Southern Cross Austereo merger, it is a really bad um, performance. And I think Hadley's point that mainly what tends to happen is the talent gets moved on and the management stays the same. Now, there have been one or two changes at the top. You know, they um, they announced that um, uh, the bosses of uh, Triple M and Hit Network, the, the effectively the content heads, would be moved on and there'll be a move into a new structure late last year. But it still feels a bit like deputy heads rolling. 
Um, we have, I'm going to have a little look as we're chatting, actually. I'm just going to call up the share price of um, Southern Cross Austereo um, just to see how it's done over the last few years. So year to date, it's down 14% since the start of the year. So this is a company with a market cap now of 440 million. Um, and in fact, that that also reflects its performance over the last uh, 12 months. Now, if you look at sort of its position um, at any time prior, it was a much more valuable company than it is now. So we've seen them trying to get out of television. You know, the TV assets are for sale at the moment. These are the regional TV stations. So they're, they've, they've, they've got that on the block and... They've also got a share buyback um, just beginning to get underway, which they announced a week or so ago. But it does feel to me that there is a moment where I do start wondering whether the shareholders might start asking some more difficult questions. So I do. I think this is why it was only a few paragraphs in the Australian's media diary today, but it did leap out at me a little bit. Unmade. So, Tim, over the weekend with Best of the Week, you've analysed the performance of the majority of holding companies. Some really interesting information coming out of that. Some great graphs, uh, by the way, kudos in Best of the Week. Do check it out if you haven't already. Uh, But you were surprised at a few things, which you've noted in that. Uh, What leapt out at you? (laughs) <laughs> thank you. And thank you for the graphs compliment as well. I, uh, uh, As has often been said about data journalism, I think it was Hal Crawford who first, certainly first said it to me, uh, data journalism is a really great way of hiding work. And this was, uh, this, th- th- this was certainly true here, where in order to create one graph, it, it did mean looking at uh, three years of financial reports for each of the uh, eight holding companies of WPP, Publicis, Omnicom, Interpublic, Dentsu, Havas, uh, S4 Capital, and Anero. Well, in fact, it was only two years worth of S4 Capital because, as we talked about recently, uh, they have had a delay in publishing their um, latest set of numbers from 2021 because of some sort of audit problem of which we don't quite know what that was yet. Um, But the purpose of the exercise was now that each of them have published their 2021 numbers, just to take a look at how they're all performing, then normalise those numbers to Australian dollars so that we could kind of compare them for like for like. So I, I won't drill down into everything, but the thing that struck me was I'd just been expecting WPP to be the biggest. That's always how I've perceived. But in fact, in terms of revenues, Omnicom is the biggest with about $19 billion in revenues. Uh, WPP just over eighteen. This is an Australian. So, um, you know, that was kind of interesting that uh, Omnicom is ahead of WPP there. And then the other thing I kind of crunched was um, looking at their profits and their publicists is actually the biggest of the three. So reporting profits of just under $3.4 billion profits. Um, now, WPP was just in second with just over three, uh, and Omnicom was very close behind as well. So we're 
at a funny point where there has quietly been a bit of a changing of the guards. Now, that comes with quite a few caveats, including the fact that because I'm translating it to Australian dollars and some are listed in euros and some are listed in US dollars and, uh, you know, in the case of Dentsu, yen and so on, um, you've got variation as soon as you move it across to Australian dollars because the exchange rate changes all the time. But yeah, I found it um, kind of a, a fascinating exercise. But as you, as you say, there's there's a lot more data in the um, Saturday's edition of Unmade. So um, to, if you're not already subscribing, go to unmade.media and take a peek at that. Yeah, and not to ruin the surprise for everyone, but one thing I did want to quickly ask you was, you know, you, you've analysed the, the last three years, as you, you say, and one trend across the board in terms of profits is, is that all of those holding companies have recorded profits uh, for 21, which were better than uh, 20, which was not hard, but for a, a, a lot of them, they were better than 19 uh, as well, which has kind of been uh, put there as the yardstick, puts them in a good position. Was there anything that you read from any of those annual reports that suggests what they're looking for in 22 that will keep that trend flowing? Well, I think one of the things was most of them used the opportunity to cut their costs. You know, as I said in the in the piece, never waste a good crisis. Um, so you saw a lot of them um, when their revenues bounced back, they came through more kind of profitable as a result. Um, so, and, and and there's some variation overall, slightly more profitable. So, if you look back in 2019, the total profits from the big six were 13.1 billion. That fell to about 10 billion in 2020, but then came right back up to even more about 13.8 billion in 2021. So WPP hasn't quite recovered yet. It's still better than uh, 2020, but not better than 2019. But Publicis is doing better. Omnicom's doing better. Dents is doing better. Havas is doing better. Um, hey, if you look at the small end of town, even Anero is doing better. And S4 Capital, we don't know. We think that they were are on course to grow, but of course we don't have PwC signed off on that yet. So, so you know, so that that's kind of where we stand um, in terms of growth going forward. Then, then you know, then we see everybody moving towards more data plays and more consultancy style work. Um, Everyone's always looking for new opportunity, you know, today. And I think it was the AFR, TBWA, for instance, and Omnicom agency were unveiling their new uh, sustainability practice. So there's there, there, there's always new kind of tactical opportunities come along. Um, but yeah, it certainly feels like whatever trajectory the holding companies were on pre-COVID, they're now back on that trajectory. Well, that is just about it for today. You might hear my voice is just beginning to go a little bit, Damo, actually. It's luckily I've got my cup of sleepy time tea to help me switch off. Anyway, we would love to hear what uh, you think of everything we've been talking about at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. And there'll be another edition of the Unmade email on Wednesday, and the next edition of the Unmade podcast will drop on Thursday with the further chapter of the audio version of Tim's book, Media Unmade. Yeah, one more episode to go before the Easter break. We're getting to the final chapters now. 
Chapter 24, fake news, the rise of disinformation, particularly on social media, QAnon, all of that sort of stuff. And if you haven't yet given us a rating in the podcast catcher of your choice, please do, because it does help other people find us. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio, and he would have done a much uh, heavier job at this time than at others, being that there's been so many cars passing me uh, at the time. So Abe, apologies for that. See you next time. Toodle pen. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.